You are listening to The Current Podcast, the official podcast of UC San Diego's IT Services Department. I'm your host, Miguel Rodriguez. Today is Wednesday, May 4th. Now, I know what you're thinking. Miguel, it's May the 4th. There's an elephant in the room. Can you do us a solid here and toss in the requisite Star Wars pun? To which, I guess I must comply, may the 4th be with you. Good? So now, whether you're a Star Wars fan or not, that little pun did not start with some meme on the internet in the early 2000s. No, apparently we humans have been clever for some time. You know, before all the office gifts and cat videos. So when was it exactly? The answer may surprise you. It looks like there's some evidence from Lucasfilm to suggest it was used to greet folks on the 4th of July in 1978, just one year after the release of the original film. I know what you're thinking. How did they miss celebrating in May for the perfect tie-in? The truth is, in the late 70s, we were still new at making puns. The British, however, had done their homework and came to win the following year, and it all had to do with Margaret Thatcher, of all people? When Margaret Thatcher won the election to become Britain's first female Prime Minister on May 4, 1979, her party took out a congratulatory advertisement in the London Evening News. The ad proudly read, May the 4th be with you, Maggie. Congratulations. And it was then the Star Wars pun had finally matured, blossoming for all to appreciate. Years later, fans stayed true to their cause, and Star Wars Day became a thing. Mission accomplished. (sighs) Anyway, back to the present day. If you're looking for plenty more information on performance appraisals, just go to the current homepage under the Stay in the Know section and click the link. And one more for the road. If you need some help on a project, please check our Help Wanted page. It details how to place an ad for help. We can advertise it on the homepage and in the newsletter to get it seen. For more info, click the link under the Lend slash Need a Hand section on the homepage. Or you can go to the search bar above and type in Help Wanted. It's the first page in the search. I promise it's there. For everything else, just go to thecurrent.ucsd.edu, your department intranet. And now, let's get into it with an exciting interview with Enterprise Architects to the Stars, David Hutches. Angie, you're up. Hello, everyone. Angie Liu, Project Manager here. I'm here with David Hutches, and we're here to talk about the life of an enterprise architect. Let's start, David, with your full name, title, and how long you've been at UCSD. Full name, David Hutches, obviously. Uh, thanks for having me on this interview, or thanks for roping me into being interviewed. Title is, I think the official payroll title is IT Architect 5, but Enterprise Architect is what I do, working title in the organization. Uh, how long have I been at UCSD? Uh, it depends on how you count. So I was here as a grad student. So okay. if you add the five years I was a grad student, it comes out to 30-something-odd years. If you include just the time that I've been officially employed by the university, it's probably more like 25-plus. I don't know. So let's say somewhere in the range between 25 and 30 years. <laughs> okay. Okay. That's pretty I will good. be as vague on that answer as I am on every other answer. <laughs> Thanks. It's something to look forward to. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Just kidding. All right, David, you started on kind of the journey that led you here. What was your degree in? So my undergraduate degree was a double major in computer science and philosophy uh, with okay. a minor in German. My okay. master's degree is computer science with a uh, minor in psycholinguistics. 
And my PhD from here is computer science. My dissertation was on uh, natural language processing, computational linguistics, and computer systems. So with all of those degrees, how did that lead you to your current role? Obviously, it's more than degrees, right? It's obviously your experience too. But how did we get to the David Hutches sitting in that chair right now? I could be flipped and say that a long list of career miscalculations. Um, so, so I think, you know, since I was a kid, I wanted to be an academic. And so the natural courses, you know, bachelor's, master's, PhD, whatever. After grad school or after I got my PhD, I went off to IBM Research in Yorktown Heights, which is kind of the headquarters of IBM's research division. I worked on a couple of things there, some software engineering projects. I actually was a contributor to Watson back in the chess playing Jeopardy days. Um, Are you saying Watson's been promoted? He doesn't play... Uh, well, well, they tried to, I think, I don't know how successfully, but it moved from IBM Research to IBM Product Divisions. And I mean, it still kind of stayed in the research division, which was at Yorktown. And so we tried to kind of turn it into something that was a more generalizable thing. One of the key things they put it into was being an expert on medical diagnosis. I don't know how successful they were because my understanding is they actually sold that to somebody else. But anyway, it was an interesting project. There was a lot of AI stuff, which is my area, particularly natural language interpretation kind of stuff. So I worked on that. I worked on a number of programming language things that got rolled into some of IBM's products in the visual age or visual stuff that they did. So yeah, and then I somehow got roped into coming back to UCSD as a uh, project scientist. The computer science department got a large infrastructure grant from the NSF. And I was made the project scientist on that. That was soft money. So one always needs to be concerned about you know, <laughs> your future when you're on soft money. I worked on a couple of projects there and also went back when I was a grad student. And I was offered a position as basically the CTO in the School of Engineering, oh, wow. um, which I did for vaguely 17 years and then got recruited-ish to become <laughs> an enterprise architect in ITS. And that's how I ended up where I ended up. Um, except for the possibility of being, you know, a researcher at IBM, which is kind of like being an academic, except in industry. And then the project scientist stuff here, I would probably call myself more of a failed academic. Uh, (laughs) I didn't end up as a faculty member somewhere. And I'm not sure in retrospect, if that was a terrible thing, given what I know faculty put up with in terms of committees and Mm -hmm. front work and all the rest of this kind of stuff. But certainly having been trained as an academic has a heavy influence on my approach to being an enterprise architect. Okay. Okay. Good to know. What is an enterprise architect? What what the heck does it do? (laughs) What is that? So in some ways, again, I'm not trying to be flip here, but in some ways, the overarching design pattern for enterprise architecture is in the name, right? Architect means that you think architecturally. You try to find the dots, connect the dots, and make sure that the dots are kind of all pointed in the same direction, just like like a standard architect does, right? They need to build a building where the walls are kind of connected together and they create rooms and put doors in and stuff like that. The building functions as a whole, right? (laughs) And so there is that architectural component, architectural thinking. Now, by the way, we're not the only ones who do architectural thinking, right? I mean, solutions architects in the organization do architectural thinking. The difference is in the modifier here, the adjective enterprise architect, which kind of talks about the scope within which you connect the dots, right? So solution architects connect the dots within the context of the specific solution. And it could be a large scale solution, obviously, but within the dots of the solution that they're working on, it's scoped to that particular thing. Enterprise architecture is scoped to, you know, again, not being flipped, everything. (laughs) Which means, by the way, not just technology, but organizational things as well, right? And so 
we try to connect the dots across the different components of the organization, both technically and organizationally. Technically in the sense that we say things like, you know, there's a technology in this other part of ITS that actually meets our needs so that we don't have to do duplication of effort or these two technologies are complementary or maybe not complementary. And we need to address that disparity, but also organizationally, which is where you say, you're not just connecting the dots technically, you're connecting the dots people-wise. It's like, you know what? Mona, you really knew it, Mona, uh, on the EIM project. It'd be Wait, really what, cool. Wait, what's that project? What was that? Uh, identity management, the best project oh, okay. in ITS. Oh, great, um, great. Sounds like a good project. Yeah. Mona, how about if you oh. talk to so-and-so, right? Because you're, you're connected, you're trying to create networks. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of the overarching design principle here for enterprise architecture. But at least the way we practice it in ITS, and this is probably true with respect to any job title in any organization, is you also have to factor in what the individual competencies or talents that a person brings to the particular design pattern for their job, right? And so, you know, every enterprise architect approaches the overarching design pattern of enterprise architecture in a unique way that's based on their skill sets. So for example, Declan Fleming is really good at trying to understand operational efficiencies and connecting together the pieces of the organization, both technically and organizationally, that get together. He's a people person. You know, if I were to say, I'm probably putting words into Declan's mouth, but (laughs) he likes the idea of the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. And the sum of the parts is technology, obviously, you know, if it's AWS or whatever, but it's also people, right? He's very good at identifying these are people with interesting complementary skills. I'm going to connect those dots and bring them together. He's very big in kind of networking people together to accomplish more than they could accomplish by themselves. Scott Lee is, he has literally decades of experience in industry on huge, Mm. very expensive, very successful projects. And he has built in his mind this incredibly valuable intuition about you know, I don't think that's going to work or that's going to work, right? And so he's really good at bringing that wealth of industry experience to the problems we're trying to solve in ITS. I mean, Kazi is the kind of archetypical data head, right? He understands all aspects of data, particularly in the educational context, data pipelines, data architectures, data design, implementation of databases, the whole this kind of soup to nuts understanding of data. Each of these people functions within the kind of connecting the dots schema, right? But each of them also brings, just like anybody in the organization does, right? You can put people into boxes only to a certain point, but then you say, what's the value add of your lifetime of experience, intuition, knowledge, skills, whatever you want to call it, that you bring to the box (laughs) that you put into? And enterprise architecture is no different. Mm. And so it's kind of individualized in that sense. Very cool. Very cool. Your team sounds very important. <laughs> well, that's like an understatement, right? I think like, I think every team in the organization is important. I yes, don't want to yes. overstate, you know, we would cease to function without enterprise architecture. You know, kind of going back to their concept of what Declan does, right? The whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Mm-hmm. And every individual and the competencies that they bring to the organization hopefully benefit the overall operation of the organization. And I think it's important that you don't single out this entity or this person is the thing that's better than everybody (laughs) else, right? And also, if you think about it, that sets up a competitive environment where what we really want to have is a collaborative, cooperative environment where we leverage the skills that everybody brings to the equation. Well said, well said. I've got a follow-up question to that. Sure. We have been becoming ITS for what, the last five years, something like Mm -hmm. that. How has the enterprise 
architect role change as we start bringing in more areas, right? Now you're connecting more dots further out. Ah, did I stomp you? No, no, of course not. <laughs> this isn't a weekly trivia quiz. Uh... Um, so I think the interesting challenge is in each engagement, what we do, or certainly what I do, is try to assess the role that you have in the engagement. I think the advantage, actually, of having enterprise architecture engage in deep ways with more functional areas, either just in ITS as it is or ITS as it grows, is that we do a better job of being able to assess the engagement into which we are placing ourselves or into which we're placed, right? One of the, I think, a naive approach would be to come into an engagement and say, okay, here are the rules of engagement. This is what enterprise architecture does. Too bad for you, right? But instead, I think what we learn from the expansion of enterprise architecture kind of infiltrating <laughs> ITS, particularly as it grows, is greater sensitivity to the state of the project, the maturity of the project, the personalities involved, where the project is timeline-wise, right? Mm. So, you know, me coming into a project at, or any enterprise architect coming into a project at the very outset, our approach to the engagement is very different than if we're brought in to a late stage project. Because if I come in at the beginning of the project, I feel more comfortable doing what I do, which is annoy people with lots of questions, <laughs> than if I come into a project and annoy people with lots of questions and they say, you know, we're 95% done with this project. We can't go back to first principles. <laughs> and so I didn't actually talk about my view of what an enterprise architect does or what I do as an enterprise architect. So I'll give you some gratuitous information here. I am either a fly on the wall, a gadfly, or a fly in the ointment, depending upon how annoying I am to people on the project, right? That's kind of the flip answer. The way I view it, and this is probably coming from me as a failed academic, which means I'm prone to asking questions and treating everything as provisional and subject to revisiting, right, is that I'm kind of a, how should we phrase this? Call me a cognitive catalyst. <laughs> nice. And what I mean is, you know, cognition is thinking, right? And catalyst is something that helps a reaction happen, right? Okay. And so okay. as I get into more and more, and this is my framing of it, I think any enterprise architect thinks of it this way, but my framing of it is that as I get into more engagements, I get a better sense of how much cognitive catalyst I apply to the project as it is and as it evolves, right? So with any catalyst, you can either not apply enough and the reaction doesn't happen, you apply too much and the reaction goes out of control, or you find the sweet spot and you apply the right amount of catalyst to make the reaction happen without it going kind of in the wrong direction one way or the other, right? And so that's kind of an analogy for how I approach an engagement in a project. And I think I've hopefully grown in some sense, and we all kind of grow continuously in being able to assess the state of a project and how much patience people have for the cognitive catalyst questions that I ask, right? And you and I have run into this, and Mona's kind of in the same boat on the EIM project, right? I need to be sensitive when I ask an annoying question that I get feedback directly or <laughs> indirectly or by you or Mona rolling their eyes saying, okay, great question. Let's put that in a parking lot, or maybe that's phase two. Let's get phase one done first, right? And so I think that's important. You know, kind of a, off the top of my head, I'm thinking like, if you invite me into your living room to help you decide the optimal arrangement of your furniture, at the outset, 
that's a cool thing. I can say, you know what? TV should go here, sofa goes over here, chair goes over here, whatever, right? If I show up your house six months later and you just want to read a book or sit on the couch and watch the TV, you're going to be pretty impatient if I'm saying, let's try moving the couch again. And you're like, come on, I just want to watch TV. Why are you moving my couch again, right? So I kind of have to be cognizant of your tolerance for me constantly <laughs> moving your furniture around. There's an appropriate time for us to reconfigure the furniture. And then other cases, maybe I want to move it an inch rather than across the room, mm. right? And so you have to assess the tolerance of the people and the project and the state of the project for the kinds of annoying questions that you ask and how they're really taken, right? One of the things I think is important, at least it's important to me, is that, gosh, I, I'm trying to explain this in a way that doesn't sound snobbish, but I think you want to help people think architecturally, right? Not because I'm coming as the font of all knowledge, but by asking questions in sort of a Socratic fashion, you're helping people think architecturally. Because I don't think it's just architects who need to think architecturally. I think a lot of people need to see how the pieces fit together so that they come up with holistic rather than point solutions, right? And so to the extent that folks like us come in with a slightly different perspective that's not driven by a particular project, the goal here is, I think, to kind of help people step back and see the problem in the big picture, see it architecturally. And again, I don't mean to imply that, you know, ooh, look how wise we are or something like that. <laughs> I, I'm just saying that there's actually a value in anybody, not just an enterprise architect, but a value in other people bringing a perspective to a particular problem because it helps you see the problem in different ways that help hopefully achieve a better solution to the problem, right? Hmm, yes. Well, very well said. So I just have to ask, are you going to put cognitive catalyst into your signature, like enterprise architect, architect <laughs> aka cognitive catalyst? Is that what you want to put? Uh, well, I'm sorry. I don't need business I, cards anymore. We don't need virtual business cards. You want to stick it in your signature? So here's the thing. Remember that science is always provisional or scientists are always provisional in their thinking, right? You know, whenever I've written a paper or done research, I look at the data and the data immediately say, ooh, they suggest the next possible better solution. So let's say I may put it in my signature until I discover something that's better for my signature. Okay. Also keep in I'm... mind that I came up with this off the top of my head. <laughs> so I need to analyze whether this is okay, actually okay. a mean, if there are any pitfalls to calling myself this. Of course, you have to analyze it. Of course, <laughs> that's kind of my yeah. job. Okay, last question. How are you consistently beating everybody in the water cooler trivia? How are you always in the top three? What's going on there? Um, well, I'm not always in the top three. Well, um, it feels like it to some of us. <laughs> you know, honestly, part of it's just luck. So oh, yeah? I'll tell you a little story. When I was a kid, I would go to Encyclopedia Britannica and read articles, right, for fun. And then I would come to the dinner table and I would present my summary of the article to my family. And my dad would say, David, you have a wealth of useless information. <laughs> And that's kind of got what me started. I'm collecting a wealth of useless information. These things just kind of stick in my head. And so I'll give you an example. I know nothing about sports, right? But the last question had this thing about some team from the Midwest. I don't even remember what kind of team it was, but it was something like the spirits of blank, right? I think that's what the question was. But I put together Midwest, what towns are in the Midwest, and spirits of blank, and immediately thought of Charles Lindbergh, who his plane was the spirit of St. Louis. And I said, must be St. Louis. And so that was just lucky, maybe informed, whatever, guess about what the possible answer could be. I have no idea what, I don't even remember what that sports team was. Maybe it was baseball, maybe it was football. I don't know. So I just put that as an answer. For the tiebreakers, it's really a function of 
how accurate the range is that I come up with. And then I put the, and I'll tell you my little secret here. I put my range, the lower and upper bound of the range into a random number generator and it picks a number, right? Really? And if my range is small, probabilistically, I'm going to be closer to the answer. If assuming my range is accurate, uh-huh. if the range is large, like it was for the Kareem Abdul-Jabbar question, I just said, okay, I don't even know how many points a player plays or <laughs> gets in a average game. So I said, okay, his lifetime total must be somewhere between 25,000 and 75,000. I put that into a random number generator and it came up with whatever it was, 46,802 or something like that. I don't remember. And that was my answer. It wasn't even remotely correct. Mm. I think it was closer to like 38,000 something. That's sometimes I get lucky. Sometimes I don't. If it asks specific questions where I don't have knowledge, which is usually pop culture, music. Really? Uh, yeah, I don't know anything about pop culture. Um, <laughs> look at me. I'm a geek. I don't know anything about this stuff. And look, pop culture is like Lord of the Rings. Um, <laughs> if it's like pop culture, social media things, sports, stuff like that, if it asks a specific question like, who was this player? I have no oh, idea, okay, okay. right? But what you do with the quiz is that oftentimes they give you lots of clues, mm-hmm. right? And so I just kind of make an educated guess from the clues. That's all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So a lot of it's just luck. Well, that makes me only feel a little bitter. But... <laughs> okay, sure. Okay, just a little bit. Because every week I'm like, oh, man, there he is again. I'm mean, I, just I, kidding. I, I was like, yay, David Hutchins. The other thing I've done for a long time, or it certainly did ever since I was a kid, was that my family would watch and kind of play along with Jeopardy. Mm. Uh, and so you kind of collect trivia that way. Mm-hmm. That's why you also do very well in our internal project jeopardy game jeopardy games yeah <laughs> or whatever yes our daily jeopardy question so yep right, well. Again, wealth of useless information that's <laughs> sounds very useful here in our department because we apparently celebrate that so sure yeah, the trivia but you know you know here's the thing i mean trivia stuff aside right is that i think it kind of goes back to what I was talking about before, which is that you have the job description box that we put people into, but within that box, or maybe even outside the boundaries of that box, people bring a wealth of experience and intuition and stuff like that, whether it's you know stupid things like being able to answer trivia questions <laughs> or real genuine things like Brian DeMille, my boss, was a philosophy major, right? So we bond over the fact that we were both philosophy majors, but he brings really interesting perspective and insights to problems because of that background. Mm -hmm. Same is true with the fact that he's a very talented musician, right? Mm -hmm. I don't think you can discount the fact that everybody in the organization has kind of what they look like on paper, but then there's all this really cool stuff that surrounds that, that they also bring to the equation. And I think you need to consider each individual holistically and not just that, you know, what they are in their job description, but this whole batch of cool stuff that they bring to it, because that's actually meaningful in how they approach, how they do their jobs. That's so EA of you. I think it's a good, valuable perspective for anybody to have when they, when they interact with people in the organization is that they're not an interchangeable box of mm. skills. They are- the, Some of them tell holistic. jokes. Ah, yeah. Someone yeah. Jokes. It's interesting. You know, I know people put up Zoom backgrounds. You have one. I don't typically, but I actually kind of like seeing what's in people's Zooms backgrounds because it creates a richer kind of perspective on who they are as a person. Mm-hmm. And it kind of makes up for the fact that you don't have water cooler, you know, interactions or whatever in the organization, because some of the most interesting things I found out about people was 
we were all kind of microwaving our lunch at the same time in the Northwest kitchen, right? And you just kind of hang out and you say, what's going on? Hey, how's it going? And you create this much richer perspective of people and what they bring to the equation. And it helps how you interact and collaborate and cooperate in the organization. Perfectly said. Perfectly cool. said. All right, David Hutchess, and- Dr. David Hutchess. Yeah, please don't say that. That just reminds me I'm a failed academic. <laughs> Is there a doctor in the house? Yes, David Hutches. Okay, okay, so to be fair, so uh, Thomas, my partner, is an internal medicine physician. Okay. And so we frequently have this conversation such that he tells me that he's the he's real doctor real in the doctor. family. <laughs> right? I'm a fake doctor, right? So <laughs> people use the counter with like, okay, how many lives did you save today? And I'm like, oh, thanks. Thanks yes. for putting my degree in such a harsh life. Yes, thanks. <laughs> anyway, thanks again so much for doing this interview. Is there sure. anything else you want to share, say? That is, knowing me as well as you do, that is exactly the wrong question to ask. What do you mean? <laughs> Never you ask know, me to elaborate on more stuff because we could be don't here for worry, hours. Don't worry, we can edit it, remember? <laughs> oh, yeah, just People edit me out. Editing. That's awesome. Yeah, that's yeah, awesome. Yeah. I think that's fine. I view this as a potentially interesting start to conversations, as are most things, right? Yeah, I like it. I like that we're thinking about it this way. Plus, we're uh, making you famous, right? We've got articles, videos, so many things of about David Hutchess as an EA happening out there. So wait, yeah, wait to uh, you become viral. <laughs> that's certainly frightening for me, and it probably should be frightening for many other people. So <laughs> careful what you wish for there. <laughs> okay, well, thanks, David. Sure, no problem. I sure hope you're enjoying this podcast. Remember to let your fellow IT services staff members know that this podcast exists. Get everyone to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you can get your podcasts. This podcast is a collaborative effort, and we want to hear from you. If you have any ideas for podcasts or topics, send them to me at its-podcast at ucsd.edu. That's it for today. Keep an ear out for the next episode of The Current Daily.